We are in Job, and we're going to go all the way to Job 32. You can start turning there if you want to. I woke up at 5 o'clock this morning with, thinking about my intro, and then my brain went on a two-hour tirade that you do not want to hear. So I'm going to give you my alternate intro, the one I started with this week, that just tells you how the order of this sermon's going to go. I'm going to put you in a car like we do in youth group for car rallies from time to time, but we're going to go all the way back to the 1980s, the Wild West of youth ministry before laws applied and rationality applied, and you just crammed as many people as you could into your car. Seatbelts were suggested, required if you had them actually, the 1970s, they were optional, 1980s, everybody that had a seatbelt had to put it in, but I remember climbing into, it was our junior high leader, his name was Rafi, brand new, 1986, 87, 88, I can't remember which part of junior high it was, but it was one of those moments, we climbed into his red, brand new Ford Festiva, not the Fiesta, that's bigger, the Festiva. It's about the tiniest car you could imagine until smart cars came out. It was red, it was new, it was shiny, and it was small. So, of course, we crammed about eight junior high boys in there. Three of them got seatbelts. The driver got a seatbelt, and the rest of us, seatbelts were optional because that's how the 80s were. Kids, you just have to believe us. It really was like Stranger Things. They're not exaggerating on that. Just the sci-fi part is exaggerated. The rest is not. That's how the 80s were. But here's the other thing. In the 80s, cars had fixed this, but any car from prior to the 80s, most cars from prior to the 80s, if you thought you were going over the mileage allotment for the car rally, some of you knew what you did, but the rest of you need to be told, you simply slammed it into reverse and drove throughout the city backwards because the odometer would go in reverse and take miles off. Anybody remember when cars did that? Yes, I remember doing that. I don't think the Ford Festiva did that, but I remember doing that in a parking lot, and we were just doing circles because the leader of the car that we had piled into thought that we needed to take a couple of miles off in reverse, going quickly in a circle in a parking lot in San Luis Obispo. Again, those of you that are too young to remember those days, that's just how the 80s were. You had old cars whose odometers didn't quite work the way they were supposed to, and you didn't trust them when you were buying a car that it was exactly the mileage that was on the odometer because they could have driven in reverse for who knows how long. You obviously couldn't do that a lot, but it happened. That was a reality. Well, I have to prep you for our sermon this way. We're going in reverse. I've thrown you in a car rally. We're going to stop at a couple places, pile out of the car, take a look at it, but we're going backwards through Job. So we're jumping all the way. Almost to the end, Job 32 through 37, this is where the new guy pops in. He's also the young guy. He's been sitting quietly, but it's now the young buck's time to hop in on the conversation. And as some of you will discover when your newly headed off to college student returns for the first time home at Thanksgiving, in the, shoot, in, the four, sh in the short few weeks, let's try not to separate or combine those words. In the short few weeks, they've been away from your house. They've learned how to solve all of the problems that exist in the world. And they're going to tell you. And that's this guy. Job 32. 
So these three men cease to answer Job. That's good. Their, their highlight in the book is when they're quiet at the beginning and then this moment when they stop talking. That's who we looked at just a little bit last week. But if you read Job, it's his friends. And as you struggle with what to do with them, remember some of what they say actually sounds good. It might be good. Some of what they say sounds just like things we say, which should challenge us to think through our practical theology of suffering and how we encourage or fail to encourage our friends when they're going through tough times. But then other things they say are really bad. Like, if you were with us last week, when, they, when the one of them compared crushing of children to the guy whose children had just been crushed and then basically said it was his fault. So these three men ceased to answer Job, and that's good. Because he was righteous in his own eyes, but remember, the book has set him up as also blameless and righteous. He is without fault. This is happening without reason. He didn't cause it. He's not culpable. Verse 2. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. And Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite, answered and said, and what you need to picture is from a couple years ago, Harvard produced a placemat for their students returning home for Thanksgiving of how to deal with their out-of-tune parents. Go look it up. It's quite a story. But this is the picture of Elihu. Now, that said, God does not talk about Elihu the same way he does the other three friends. It's kind of interesting. He doesn't chastise Elihu. But this is what Elihu says, and you need a picture. Maybe the vein popping out of his head, but definitely a lot of youthful intensity, which is not always bad, but can be bad. He says this. I am young in years, and you are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak, and many years teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. Behold, I waited for your words, I listened for your wise sayings, while you searched out what to say. I gave you my attention, and behold, there was none among you who refuted Job or who answered his words. And then he continues for five chapters. And he says much of the same things that the friend said, leaves out some of them. He is certainly better than what they say, but he is still coming after Job. Job, it's your fault. You should treat God better. Let me speak. I, gave, I deferred to age. I thought the, the smart people would talk first. They proved to be dumb. Now it's my turn. Let me speak and hear me. And then he approaches Job with the same attitude. Now, as I mentioned, it's very interesting at the end that, Job, that God does not chastise Elihu. He does the other three friends. That's another thing that we have to wrestle with in the book of Job. Does that mean Elihu was right? Does that mean Elihu was just young and God held the older men accountable? 
He's not entirely correct, though, because he still lays the blame and the culpability at Job's feet, which the Bible has made clear and continues to make clear is not the case. So Elihu is wrong. He may not be offensively wrong, but he's wrong nonetheless. He's certainly wrong to the point he shouldn't speak for five chapters. But we all know that kid back from college, don't we? I'm not saying college students, bear me out. I love you all. I'm not saying every college student is that kid when they come back from college. But we all know that moment, partly because we might have been that moment. We might still be that moment. But Elihu certainly is that moment. He is that young buck that knows everything. He's going to take the hardest problems in the world. He has walked the planet away from the house for days upon seven other days. And he knows the answers. But he doesn't because he's wrong about this. But we're going backwards. That's where it's going to end before God finally comes in and answers. And I want you to remember that. The, the title of the sermon is Let the Almighty Answer. It's actually a statement by Job. It's Let the Almighty Answer Me. And in chapter 38, God is going to answer. But that's next week. We're going to back up. Go to Job 31. This is one of my favorite statements by Job, especially as somebody who works with young people. It's certainly not only a young person problem. In chapter 31, he lays out his case for why he is not guilty, and he goes into detail in more than just verse 1. But verse 1 is a significant verse, especially for our culture. Job 31. We're going to jump around in this. I would encourage you to go read Job 31 straight through or go read all of the parts that we've skipped, if you haven't already, in Job, you can stretch it out over a couple days or even a couple weeks if you want to. Read an interaction between his friends and him. But it's especially go read Job 31 in its entirety. It's a great chapter. We're just going to look at a couple, well, many highlights from it. Different points. The first point where he introduces, I'm not guilty of this. I'm not guilty of this. I'm not guilty of this. I haven't done this or this or this. Feel free to point out my sin, but it's not in this range, and this is the typical range of humanity. And he lays out quite a bit. Here's the first one, Job 31.1. I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then I could I gaze at a virgin? That's the ESV. Other versions have it. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman or at a woman. In our family, we just said at another. We quote this, actually, typically. We've, we've, as the kids have gotten older and spread out, we don't do this as much. But on Monday nights, when we'd have our family devotion, well, our family time together, we would quote a number of scriptures, starting with the Shema. But this was one that we added in. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at another. Job says, I have not been wandering the world and been unfaithful in my head or my heart toward my wife. Verse 9, he says it this another way. He says, if my heart has been enticed toward a woman and I have lain in wait at my neighbor's door with the implication of I haven't done that. I have not been caught up in lust. That's the one he starts with, really. Keep in mind, 
The chapter breaks aren't there. Job 31, it, says, it maybe says, has the subtitle, His Final Response. It's, it's just part of the whole thing that he's saying. You can read 30 along with it if you want to and wherever he starts in that. But 31 does definitely turn a corner where he goes into specifics, and it starts with this one. I have not been caught up in what our world struggles with. Our culture actually defends your right to of lustfulness. He says, I haven't gone down that road. Gentlemen, men, young men, boys, for the history of the world we have lost in this battle. And he declares, I haven't, but it's a great verse to memorize. I will commit myself to think rightly of women and not lustfully of women. And notice that Job places the culpability of that at his own feet and not how they dress. Not how they act, but how he engages in their existence. He says, the sin would have been mine, not at their feet, but it isn't, I'm innocent of this. But men, for too long we have justified it in the smallest and the biggest of ways. Students, you need to understand this. Your world will teach you that it's good and healthy to engage in lustfulness, and it is wrong. It is not okay. It is not healthy. It is undermining your relationships. And I don't just mean the romantic ones. I mean all of them. Young men in particular, but young people, if you are engaging in pornography, it is hurting every relationship you have. And the stats bear that out. It is crushing our culture. And it is addictive. It actually rewires the brain just like drugs do. So it becomes a self-perpetuating problem if you aren't careful with it. All you have to do is talk to older people that have struggled with it in a moment where they're able to and willing to and in a relationship where they're willing to be honest with you about it if they've struggled with it and they will tell you how hard of a battle it's been. But there's another group I haven't really addressed and it's, it's all the women. For some reason in our culture, you decided to enter the race and try to catch up to the men. That was a bad choice. And for a long time, it consisted mostly in romance novels and a thought life around lustfulness. And in our current culture, starting with the lovers of friends, and I'm not bashing the show, especially this weekend with the loss of one of the cast members. But where we started as a culture endorsing it as healthy practice to engage in pornography instead of saying, no, that's wrong. And women have been catching up, and it's not a race you wanted to enter. It is hurtful, especially to women, but it is hurtful to every relationship. Now, this is a powerful verse. Job 31.1, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at another. Our culture fights us in that at every point. But it isn't new to us. Job had to say it for a reason. Get in the habit when you read scripture of realizing if it's a statement about holiness, especially if it's a command or a challenge, there's a reason it had to be said and that they weren't that different from us. There are different realities. It's much more prevalent and you can stumble upon it on accident, but the reality is lust has always been a struggle for humanity. But Job's declaring to his friends, I didn't sin that way. Verse 5, if I had walked with falsehood and my foot had hastened to deceit, says I didn't sin 
with falsehood or deceit. I've been truthful. Verse 13, if I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant, when they brought a complaint against me, he says, I have not dealt unjustly with my workforce, my servants. I have not been a bad boss. We don't think about, and we don't enough, we don't think about the points where Scripture talks about this engagement. This goes to the heart of, we were talking about before a couple of us, but to the heart of capitalism run amok when it is not restrained by our social engagement or morality and we're just trying to get as much money as we can. He says, I haven't ignored my workforce. I have not been unjust with them. Verse 16, if I have withheld anything that the poor desired or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, I have not been unjust toward the poor. Verse 24, if I have made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence. He says, I haven't been greedy. Don't panic. I still think a free market and capitalism is better than the alternatives. But it must be biblically restrained or it becomes a killer. It's sinfulness. Verse 29, if I have rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me or exulted when evil overtook him. He says, I haven't been unjust toward nor sinned toward my enemy. A little bit later in those verses, he said, nor my neighbor, the people around me. I am sinless in my relationship with them. That does not mean he doesn't need a savior. He's going to get to a wonderful statement of that actually before this, but a little later in the sermon. Verse 33, if I've concealed my transgressions as others do by hiding my iniquity in my heart. It says, I haven't ignored sin. I haven't covered up sin. And kind of behind these words, and, and you haven't been able to point out the sin that I am missing. I've been asking, and you've failed. That's what Elihu's saying. Hey, old dudes, you couldn't challenge him. You tried and tried, and he defeated you. He's not wrong, according to Elihu. I mean, he's not right, excuse me. He's wrong, he's not right. But you were wrong for not pointing out his wrongs. But Job is saying, I didn't have them to point out. I'm not covering them up like we tend to do. We think that our sins can be hidden. It's just a matter of time before they're uncovered. And we can't learn that lesson very effectively because we keep trying to hide them. Think of your toddlers when you had them, if you had them, your younger nieces and nephews, the ones who would run up at the party asking for cake, wondering where it was when it's smothered on their mouth because there's chocolate everywhere, but they don't want you to know they already had it, so they're trying to cover up. Verse 38. This one's an interesting one because this one's not a person. If my land has cried out against me and its furrows have wept together. Job even says, I haven't wronged the land. I have not dealt unjustly with the land that I live on and I am blessed with. This is another thing that we tend to ignore in our circles. At the end of Jonah, it says that God cared about the cattle. In Genesis, it says we're the caretakers of the planet. And in Job 31, he says, I haven't wronged even the land. 
there's a heart throughout Scripture to be right caretakers of the planet as we were created for in Genesis 2, even though it's broken. And it certainly, as our culture does, can go amok that direction where we start valuing the land or animals over people. But Christians ought to be the best conservationists of the planet, not the worst. We also ought to be the people that can hold it in its right position and not let it become domineering where we can't live. But he says, I haven't been unjust to the land. He runs through this list in Job 31 and says, you can challenge me on these, but you're going to come up short because I haven't wronged anybody this way. I don't know how, how you would go about doing this, but could you imagine having to declare yourself innocent before your friends and your family or in public and actually running through a list and inviting the response? Because that's what Job does. We see Samuel do the same thing later. It's amazing. Hey, if I've wronged him, I think Samuel partly is saying, if I have wronged anybody, I'll make it right at this moment. Job isn't in that setting. But a similar thing saying, I haven't wronged anybody. That's not why this happened. Go back a little earlier. I'm not going to read from it, but Job 23, 24 presents the ultimate question in the problem of pain and evil, and it's this. Where is God? Where is God? But remember, God is listening. He's going to make that clear. I've already pointed out some, and I'll come back to that. But another stop first. Job 19, verse 13 through 27. This has a line you probably remember, and you might forget from time to time that it's actually in Job and stated by Job. But I'm going to read a lot, see if you can catch the line. He's put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. He's talking to the three that, that, is talk, that are challenging him right now. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I've become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strained to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Remember chapter 2. His wife's the first one that gives him bad advice. This probably indicates it's not going well at home for them. Remember, she's struggling too. But that's a painful verse to read. My breath is strange to my wife, and I'm a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Oh, you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, 
and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. Did you catch the line? It's a song. We used to sing it. It's a great line where he says, my Redeemer lives. I know that my Redeemer lives. A little bit of a caution, but it's a fun thought exercise too, but a little bit of a caution. He probably isn't stating it the way that you sing it. Now the word probably is in there. God's speaking through him. This is an errant scripture that's recorded for us, ironically, given what he said. I'll come back to that too. But when he says, my Redeemer lives, he is not definitively thinking of Christ. He might be, but we don't know that for sure. But scripture is. God certainly knew, whether Job understood it or not, that we would latch on to this verse and go, he's so right. My Redeemer lives. So again, this is the answer to the problem of evil. Job maybe stumbles on it and doesn't realize the significance of what he said, but it is the heart of the answer to the problem of evil. Why do bad things happen to good people? I don't always know, but I know this. My Redeemer lives and is the answer for their pain. Why do friends and family abandon us when we are going through the most difficult of moments? I don't know, but Psalm 56 exists because Jesus is our tear collector. He's our living Redeemer, catching our sorrows and taking note of them. Again, ironically, writing them in a book according to Psalms. He's taking note of the pain Because he's a living redeemer. Now here's another fun wrestling thing though. Does Job know exactly what he's talking about? We don't know. But have you ever read the Old Testament and felt like maybe they understood more than we realize or give them credit for understanding? You can go all the way back to Cain and we struggle with, well, why was Cain's offering rejected? And it could have been as simple as this. He literally knew better because God told him. It's not recorded that he told him, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen. And when Moses' face is glowing and he's on the mountain and he's meeting with God regularly, what were they talking about? We don't know the details, but I promise you it wasn't the basketball game score. They didn't have it yet. It wasn't invented. If they were talking about sports, it would have been a different one. But that's not what we think they were talking about. And here maybe is the clincher, not so much for Job, but other parts of Scripture. When Jesus is explaining to the disciples about himself, he goes to the Old Testament. He's pointing out the Old Testament. And how it points to him all the way along. And he certainly takes them to Psalm 22. And he takes them to Isaiah. So what if they knew more than we give them credit for? 
Not the details necessarily, but maybe even more of the details because God told one of them from time to time. You're not going to understand this, but let me tell you about the Redeemer. Maybe when Job says, I know my Redeemer lives, he knows exactly what he's talking about. Maybe. Go to verse 25 again. For I know that my Redeemer lives. The R, the capital R, if you're looking at it, is what we're debating. Should it be capital, according to Job, or is it just capital in hindsight, which is totally fair to capitalize it, by the way? But which way does it go? There's no answer to this. But wrestle with it and ponder. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, he will stand upon the earth. Well, that sounds like maybe he knows a little bit. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, or yet without, instead of in, it could go either way, yet without my flesh I shall see God. I know that my Redeemer lives and that he will stand on the earth, and when I am dead and my flesh is gone, I will stand before God. That sounds like a lot of sound theology that he got somewhere. And this man who's struggling and broken is clinging, as he should, to the answer to the problem of evil. I don't know why, because Job does not find out why. Job doesn't even find out in the end why, as far as we know. We do. We've known all along. He just gets things back. God, there's no point recorded that God explains. Now, maybe he did, but it's not recorded for us that he explained. Well, let me tell you about chapter 1 and 2. But he's clinging to the God who saves. In fact, his whole argument, and this is probably why God's allowing him to say pretty much whatever he wants to say in the process of struggling, his whole argument is, God, I'm clinging to you. You're my redeemer. But where are you? Again, that was in chapters I didn't read, but it's there. Where are you? In fact, I want my my time in court with you because I want to plead my case not with these bozos plus one more but to you the one who can do something the one whose challenge I would take if God came in and said no this is where you're wrong in the chapter 31 list that I came through Job would be very quick to say yeah I hadn't thought about that or I missed that or I did cover that one up because you're God you know That's part of what he's begging for. God, show up now and you correct me. But from where I see it, I just need you because I don't understand what's going on. But he does know this. I know that my Redeemer lives and I will hold to it. And that is always the answer. No matter what you're facing, I will hold to my Redeemer for he lives I pointed this out a couple times, though, it was ironic. Did you catch what he said, though, about his story being written down? What are we reading? They wrote it down. He's talking and he says, oh, that this would be recorded. And it was. They wrote it down. It was a story worth keeping. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. And God 
planned it from the beginning, but also took note and said, deal. Let's write this one down because people are going to experience this in their own lives and need to have your example of clinging to me. Even if other people are looking at them and saying, you have the wrong words, you can't talk to God that way, and God said, write it down, I want everyone to know you can absolutely talk to me that way, and I will engage, and I will listen, and I will write it down. Both Job 19 and Psalm 56 are taking note. Job's story is written down for us. It's quite wonderful. Now we actually are going to go forward, go all the way back to chapter 31 and the first part of verse 35. And this is a powerful statement. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here's my signature. And then Job makes an amazing statement that is one of those sounds really bold, and I don't know if I can talk to God that way statements. And, Job, and God's response in Job 38 and what God records in Job 38 and following lets you know he's talking about this verse. Because Job says, let the Almighty answer me. Let the Almighty answer me. And when we get to Job 38, if you read it, it continually says, the Lord answered. It's pointing back to this verse. It's not the Lord chastised. It's a strong statement, don't get me wrong, but it's the Lord answered. He answered in power. He answers with presence. We're going to get to all of that in the weeks to come. But one of the things you need to catch, and you need to catch it right here, is 31, 35. Let the Almighty answer, and and the Almighty says, I will answer. I've been paying attention, Job. And now I will answer. Not like your friends. I'll deal with them. But I'm going to deal with you not like them. Instead, I'm going to answer. And that's what's to come. In all of this, that middle section of Job, the part that is very easy to just skip over, and there's times to do that for sure. If, If you need an encouragement... The middle of Job is not the place to get your encouragement most of the time, although take note of the my Redeemer lives verse for sure. But if you're walking through pain and you want to see God respond to somebody, don't forget to read the first part where he's being challenged and God's sitting there taking notes and writing it down. And then in his powerful answer, he shows he's a tender God that says, Job, I was listening I'm not just here to rebuke, I'm here to love you. Let me tell you how intensely I was listening. But in all of this, what you'll hear is Job declaring that injustice is wrong. And we shouldn't be afraid to deal with this. Job declares his rightness, I have not been unjust toward anyone. It's a standard to strive for. Whether it's your staff, if you're a business owner, or it's the land even. I've not been unjust in my worldly interactions and my life. I've been just because God calls us to being just. Also though, 
points out that it's important that we live holy in every aspect of life. You read Job 31 and it goes through quite a bit of daily life interactions. I have not sinned this way or this way or this way. Through the leading of the Holy Spirit, we can run through the same list. God, I haven't sinned against you this way. Lord, I have sinned. I need your, your forgiveness. I will come repentant. But here's the standard of holy living, and we see Job declare, I am living a holy life. This has not been brought about by my sin. And he goes through holy living in every aspect of life. As you listen to his words, it continually points out Job the book and Job the man point out that he is suffering without cause. You need to understand that it is still true. What it declares in Job 1 and 2 is still true. He has not sinned even with his mouth, even if that makes you uncomfortable. He's not the cause of this. It doesn't turn partway through where all of a sudden it becomes justified in that sense and it's discipline of Job. Job is not being disciplined. Satan is being shown to be wrong. And Job's faith is being established as about the deepest you could possibly have as he clings to his Redeemer and to the Almighty. As the book then tells us that the Almighty listens and answers. Let the Almighty answer. You can declare that to God. It's okay. Careful, though. He'll show up. But if that's exactly what you want when you are struggling the most, turn to God and say, let the Almighty answer me. I need you. He may not show up on your timetable, but he is not absent. And he will answer. But most of all, cling to this, Job's words, my Redeemer lives. I look forward to eternity because my Redeemer lives. I put my faith in Christ's work at the cross and I am following him because he is not a dead Redeemer but a living Redeemer. My Redeemer lives. When all of my life is falling apart, on my worst and most horrible of days, I will cling to him, the Almighty, because my Redeemer lives and that means this day doesn't matter that way. It matters for today for sure, but it does not matter in the face of eternity because my Redeemer lives and carries me through the brokenness I encounter today. My Redeemer lives. Let's pray. Lord, mighty, holy, awesome, and living, we praise your name, and you are so worthy. Lord, in our most broken moments, let us scream out, even if we're shaking a fist at you, that we need you. Lord, where we are wrong, make us repentant for sure. But Lord, help us to hold tightly to you, our living Redeemer, knowing that whether this world makes sense or not, you are our only answer and our only hope for eternity but you are our living redeemer. And so we praise your name. Amen.